Man, good morning, church. My name is Ray Brandon. I'm pastor for preaching here at Northbridge. If you would, take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3. Welcome to those that are watching online as well. Um, I uh, thank you, John, for leading us um, in worship through music. Uh, by the way, those uh, the songs that we sing every week um, are available on Spotify, so you can either go to the church app and there's a link there or um, just go to Spotify and search on, on Northbridge. And at our home, all the worship songs for Sunday morning are on repeat by the time we wake up. And so that's a wonderful thing, just to be able to prepare your heart for the Word of God even before you get here to church. Like John said, you know, beginning and ending your day with God's Word, and that's just another tool um, that's available to you to be able to just um, to, to, to gain Scripture and to put that into your mind uh, through the ministry of, of music. Um, I want to thank those that take the initiative uh, to, to do Connect events. Um, that is a, a wonderful thing. There was a women's axe-throwing event that a whole bunch of our ladies went to and had a, had a great time. Um, so I, I really appreciate those that are initiating those kinds of things. Uh, the Bible's really clear that um, relationships take initiative, they take investment. Uh, the Bible talks about those that have friends, show themselves friendly, and uh, so thank you very much. Although I do understand, Justin, that if your wife is angry and a axe is within arm's distance, that you're safe. I, I did hear that, that you're probably okay. <laughs> So that's good. The rest of the men, though, you need to move all the axes out of the house, okay? <laughs> so they had a great time. We have some real marks women when it comes to axes. And there's lots of other Connect events that are, that are in uh, the church app. And uh, so go ahead and, and, and check those things out. And uh, do participate those, in those as best um, as you can. And, and, uh, and just consider even uh, initiating one of those. So if you're a regular attender at Northbridge, there is a place to, to go on and, and uh, say, I'll, I'll host one. And um, those are rather simple to do. And uh, um, Cody, uh, uh, myself, Grace, um, uh, any of the uh, individuals here that are on staff can help you uh, put that together. All right, so we're in this scripture. We, we didn't finish the message last week, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. So we are finishing with verse 16 um, this, this week. Let me read the scriptures um, for you this morning. The word of God says this, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. This is the word of the Lord. So there's a particular word in verse 16 um, that is a hinge on uh, which this, this text turns, and that is the word godliness. It's an important word. Uh, the, the word godliness has, has two parts. Um, one part is ritual or religion, and the other part is how that belief system works out in common or ordinary life. So godliness is the combination 
of one that is religious and their religion applies to the rest of their life, right? So they, it goes hand in hand. It's not just ritual or rite or, you know, going through the motions, checking the box, however you want to look at that. There's a danger to having just religion. It's hollow. It's empty. There's also a danger in having certain rules to live by, maybe 12. Um, there's a danger in that because it's just simply rules. It's just law. Right? So the, the, the Christian faith is unique in that it combines this reenacting. We're, we're doing that today, the very structure of our liturgy, um, the, the, the sacraments that we participate in, preaching and worship and the elements of communion this morning, baptism as well, um, those very things paint a picture. They retell a story, and it's the story of Jesus. They tell it over and over again. It's like a diamond in different ways. We, we look at that, and we understand who God is and what he has done, his character and nature, and ourselves in reflection of his character and nature, who we are. And then there's, there's, we, we take from that and we understand this is who God is. This is what he's done. And Christianity is unique from all other religions in that is a religion of grace. There's grace. God is gracious. All other religions simply have law, either in right, religion, or in practice. But what we have here this morning is, is the unfolding revealing of who God is and the grace that he gives us. And so then we put that into practice. And really, we see this in the structure of the book of 1 Timothy itself because we, we just read that Paul is writing these things. Why? In order to put order into a house. You ever have your house in disorder, right? And finally, somebody in the house goes, hey, everyone, we're getting this place into shape, right? And uh, somebody says, why? Who's coming over? You know, there's like, what, what's going on that we got to do that? And, you know, it, there's just this like, we got to get the house in order. And then somebody's got to put it in order. And usually that means giving some orders. You go do this and you go do this and you go do this. And, you know, and then, you know, you get the family members who are like, all right, you know, we got to get this place in order, Right? We don't have a religion just simply of rules. This isn't a letter of Paul just writing to Timothy saying, here are the rules, get this. There's a reason behind this. So we can think about this very clearly. There is a reason behind the duty that we have to the gospel. There is a definite duty to the gospel. Why? Because it's a response of gratitude. It's very different than just simply 12 rules for life or any other kind of thing. You look at these religions like Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, all these other, you will simply, you'll find rites and practices, but it's all based on law. Now, do we have certain responsibilities in Scripture? Is there duty built into this? Yes, there is. But it comes from a very different place. You see, what we could do is we could get to the end of verse 16, and we will, 
And you can say, what in the world does this have to do with me? Well, it has everything to do with you. It has everything to do with your response. And so we have several different responses this morning to the text this morning. I want to move us to this place because this text is, is all about Jesus. It's, it's written perhaps in your, in your Bible. You'll notice that um, in, in some versions of the Bible, um, verse 16 will be offset and it looks like poetry because it is. It's a response. Perhaps um, this section of Scripture begins, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. This most likely was a hymn or confession of the early church. It was a response to the gospel that they committed to memory, possibly to song. And it was something that would be recited over and over and over again because it was precious. It was valuable. They wanted to hold it not just in their head, but also in their heart. Great indeed, we confess. It's the mystery of godliness. That's why it's written in this different type of literature. And we're coming up on Valentine's Day. I don't know about you guys, but like, don't get your wife a manual for marriage on Valentine's Day. Yeah, that is funny, right? Because, you know, they, they might say, hey, babe, we are going to the axe throwing event next week. You're the target. You know, I don't know. But you're going to do something different. You're, you're going to appeal to beauty, poetry, that kind of thing. Why? Because there's something that happens in response to love. Beauty is a response to love. Praise is a response to love. Right? Worship is a response to love. But we'd also say duty is a response to love. And that's what the gospel does in our hearts. You see, when the gospel is operative in our hearts, right, there's just something that happens that, that wells up in us when we really understand how great indeed is this mystery revealed in Jesus? There's a desire, there's a bubbling up of love that produces joy and peace and patience and gentleness and kindness and all these good things that are the fruit of the Spirit. And so this passage in the Word of God in and of itself has the power to do that. It has the power in our lives to transform us because great indeed is the confession of who Jesus is, this mystery that is now revealed in Christ. And so what we see here in the text, and we're going to look at these very briefly, this creed gives us six truths about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So six truths about our Lord and Savior. We're going to just put them up there um, and so that you can see them. I know that they're, they're rather small if you're looking at them here and at home. I realized that after I made these. I probably should have done it three and three. So um, see me afterwards or email us if you want you know, those if, I, um, if you're taking notes and you can't read those. But I'll, I'll go through them. First, Jesus Christ was revealed in the flesh. He's revealed in the flesh. That's what it says here. Um, he was manifest in the flesh. Um, so you'll notice the structure of this particular passage. It's three couplets of sayings. Um, they go very close together, but it's six statements. 
And so we can look at this one of two ways. I want to look at each one of the statements. Um, but they're very close in what they're, what they're saying. So we're going, to, we're going to mark the distinctions of the three couplets in six statements. The first is that Jesus Christ was revealed in the flesh. We've come through a season of which we celebrated the incarnation. Um, Jesus didn't come into the world as a normal human being, although he was fully man, absolutely fully man. While he was conceived of the virgin, the spirit of God it, um, overshadowed Mary and, and, and the, the Christ child was placed inside the womb of Mary. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit. So he was, he was not created. He was not, he was not created. What this speaks to is that he existed prior to his incarnation, right? He was revealed in the flesh. Jesus didn't have a beginning in the same way that you and I have a beginning, although he was fully human. He was revealed as humanity, God in the flesh. He was made visible at the incarnation uh, flesh here does not refer to the same kind of flesh that we have in the sense of fallen human nature, as Romans 7 reminds us that we are sinful, but rather it refers to mere humanness. He was born without sin. In Philippians chapter 2, it says that, that Jesus was made in the likeness of men and found in the appearance of men. So he was fully human, but he was without sin since he, he, was, he was flesh and blood, the writer of Hebrews says, but um, he himself did not share in our sin, but yet he walked um, this life and lived um, without sin. And so the writer of Hebrews says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Great indeed, we confess, this mystery of godliness. Right? Jesus was the perfect worshiper. Right? He, he knew all the rituals. He knew the object of worship. But he also lived a sinless life. So if Jesus was revealed in the flesh. Um, second, um, he was vindicated in the spirit. He was vindicated in the spirit. Um, vindicated means to justify or to declare righteous. And, and so Jesus was, was sinless, and he was a sinless sacrifice on our behalf. Um, the, in, in your Bible, you can look there, and it says he was um, vindicated, by the, vindicated in the Spirit. Some translators have decided to capitalize that, making it refer to the Spirit of God. And, um, and this, this is very true, that Jesus Christ was declared righteous, by the, the very Spirit of God. Romans chapter 1, Paul tells us that Jesus Christ was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness. It was the Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead. So he was vindicated by the third person of the Trinity in his, his resurrection. This is true. This is wonderful. Not only did he die, he rose again and was vindicated by the Spirit, but he also was vindicated in his Spirit. So both are very true. You can 
choose to say, well, he's vindicated by the Holy Spirit. That is correct, but he was also vindicated in his spirit. In other words, um, in his spiritual nature. That's why in Matthew 3, 17, um, when at the baptism of Jesus, God the Father said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And John calls him Jesus Christ the righteousness. He is Jesus Christ, our righteousness. So he was vindicated by the Spirit of God in resurrection. He was vindicated in his spirit. He was um, holy, perfect in his spiritual nature. He was fully God, fully man, absolutely perfect. So he was revealed in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit. Third, Jesus Christ was beheld by angels. As we've gone through the Christmas season, um, we have mentioned the angels, um, the angels who came and announced his birth. Um, many of you are studying in your small groups, if you're going through the first chapters in Luke, and, and the angel that, that comes and announces uh, both to Mary and to Elizabeth and tells of the coming of, of Jesus. And so his, his coming is uh, announced, proclaimed, um, or beheld by angels and um, first Peter chapter 3 it also um, talks about not just heavenly angels but also fallen angels that that Jesus himself um, that his appearing is was proclaimed by angels listen to the scriptures in first Peter chapter 3 verses 18 through 20 it says for Christ also died for sins once and for all the just and the unjust in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he also went and made and proclaimed to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. These are fallen angels. His victory has been declared. Right? It was announced at his coming. It was declared in his death. So here we see that all of the actions of Jesus, his life is beheld. In fact, the scripture says that when angels look and they look at the redemptive work of Christ and the fact that God has given what he has given for you and I, they marvel. And when one comes to know Christ as Savior, they rejoice. Oh, it's, it is good to recite this creed, to sing this hymn, how great indeed is the godliness, the beauty of our Savior. He was revealed in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, beheld by angels. He was forth proclaimed among the nations, proclaimed among the nations. Um, we see that his last words to his disciples were what? In Matthew 28, go into all the world, all the world, and make disciples of all, all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and I am with you always, even until the end of the age. He was proclaimed among the nations. He continues to be proclaimed among the nations in Acts 1.8. So the beginning of the church age, it begins with, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even the remotest, the uttermost parts of the, the earth. 
That's what we're called to do. That's what you and I are here. That's our existential existence is to proclaim the glory, to proclaim this creed, to sing this hymn, to recite these scriptures so that all the world might know who he is. He was proclaimed among the nations. Paul writes to Timothy as he says, hey, this is how you need to set your house in order. He, he bookends this with the gospel and with the object of the gospel. Here's how you ought to behave. Here's the duty that you have, but it comes from a very different place. It comes out of the grace of God who has made you, who has redeemed you, so that you may do what? So that you may sing, recite, declare the glory of the one who has called you, given his life for you. Fifth, Christ was believed on in the world. Oh, this, this is an, an amazing one as well. When you talk about the mystery of godliness, right? This is not just an Old Testament mystery that's now been revealed in Christ. It's also a mystery that people believe this. Our world looks at what we're doing this morning and it laughs and it scoffs. The fairy tales that people would trust it that you would believe these myths. Oh, if you could be hardy like secular man. It is amazing. In a world that is fallen and rebellious against God, that God would call us and open the eyes of our heart. And that ought to be our prayer for one another and for those in our community that God would open our heart to see the truth of who Jesus is. How great indeed is the mystery of godliness. That he's believed on in the world. The plan of God was fulfilled in the apostles' proclamation there in those first days of the church. And at the first preaching of the gospel by a man who had done what? forsaken Jesus not once but three times. Right? So he, he says he calls not the wise, not the great, but he uses what? The foolish. He uses, in other words, he uses everyone. And so at the proclaiming of the word of God by Peter after the resurrection of Jesus in the early days of the church, 3,000 people were saved. And in the days that followed, many, many more believed on him. And since that day to this time right now, the reason that you're here today, whether you're a follower of Jesus Christ or not, what brought you here into this place with the church is the story of Jesus proclaimed. There isn't another story like it in all of history. In fact, I would even argue that all stories are built upon that very story. That there isn't a story told that doesn't have a connection to the best story, the greatest story. Right? Every story of the guy that slays the dragon and gets the girl is the story of the gospel retold. It has those elements because why? It's, it's part of the fabric of who we are. It's not a myth. 
It's just a mystery that God by his grace has revealed. And so we trust in who he is and we trust only because he has revealed it to us and opened the eyes of our hearts to believe. So he was revealed in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, beheld by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world. And finally, Jesus was taken up into glory. He was taken up into glory. Acts chapter 1 Verses 9 and 10 describes the scene of Jesus' ascension. It says, after he said these things, he was lifted up, and while they were looking on, a cloud received him out of their sight, and they were gazing intently into the sky while he was departing. Behold, two men clothed in, in white stood beside them, and they said, all, they said to the men, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. What did he do when he ascended? The writer of Hebrews tells us in verse 3 of chapter 1 is that he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Jesus' ascension shows us that God the Father was pleased with the work of the Son. So we see in his resurrection the power of the Spirit, the approval of the Spirit. But we see in his ascension that God the Father as well accepted his work. And so in these brief stanzas of this creed, this hymn, this this poem, we see that God became man. He died for our sins. He triumphed over death. He was honored by angels, feared by demons, and he ascended into heaven victorious. And this message was preached and has been preached and will be preached all over the world so that men and women might believe and be saved. And that's the heart of our message. And that's the thrust of our mission, and that is our joy to proclaim this same message. As we respond to the word of God this morning, I want us to think very clearly. I want us to ask God to work on our hearts. Because, you see, godliness, godliness and holiness, they go very close together. They go very close together. You can have a certain kind of holiness that is not godliness. Right? You can have a certain kind of holiness that is godliness because to be holy just seem, means set apart for a particular purpose. Right? We, it's just, I have, this, I have this tool, it's set apart to do this thing. Right? It works well to do this thing. If I try to do that thing with this tool, then not only am I going to be frustrated, I'm probably going to break something in the process. Right? So holiness means to be set apart for a particular purpose. Godliness has to do with how you practice your belief corporately as well as how that, is, how that, how that works out in your daily life. It has to do with the worship of God through the week, right? So you can have, they're, they're two different things, but yet they are, they are intertwined. But we'd say Christian godliness and Christian holiness, 
they come from not law, but they, they come from an affection for Jesus and an understanding of what Jesus Christ has done. And so there's two things. Christians distinguish themselves by a lifestyle, that's godliness, a lifestyle of holiness, right? Godliness is the lifestyle. Holiness is saying, I'm set apart for this purpose. So we could say that all athletes, in some sense, are holy, right? Because they do certain things and not do certain things because they want their bodies to be set apart for a particular purpose, right? So they're not guzzling Coke and gummy bears two meals a day, right? You can't run on that and be an athlete. Well, some of you can, but it's going to break down sooner or later, right? You can't do that. You see, Christians, in the same way, distinguish themselves by a lifestyle, so godliness, um, what they learn and what, how they train, what they worship and what they praise, a lifestyle of holiness. It's about being set apart. And, and this, this creed, Christians are those that have certain fixed beliefs about who Jesus is. That, that lifestyle, that godliness and holiness comes from fixed beliefs about who Jesus is. You know, I was, I was, watching, um, I was watching a show, and the, the, the character in the show said, you know, I think the church is behind the times on these issues. And I thought, that's, that's a pretty common saying today. The church is behind the times on these issues. But, well, the, 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 the teaching of the church doesn't change about Jesus. It's fixed. The word of God doesn't change. It's fixed. Our, our understanding does grow, and our expression of it does grow. And that's a distinction. So we've mentioned the fact that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three persons, one essence, they're one. Um, so we express that in the word Trinity, right? So you won't find that word Trinity anywhere in the scriptures, but yet I'd say it's a basic and orthodox, a fundamental belief of Christianity that there are three persons in the Godhead, yet one essence. And so our understanding and expression of the unchanging truth of scripture might might grow so that for a, for a particular time and place, it's clear. But the beliefs of Scripture are fixed. They're fixed. They never change. This mystery of godliness, it is an amazing thing. And so we, we look that Christians are to distinguish themselves by a lifestyle of holiness based on fixed beliefs about Christ. And what does that do? Well, we actually have to go back and look at what are the things that Paul said should be put into order before this, and we're gonna look at some things after that, that this life of godliness, this lifestyle of holiness that comes out of godliness is expressed in certain commands. There's order to it. We have to have order. In, in our parenting seminar, and some of you are reading the, the book as well, it talks about the fact that a household, the foundation is Jesus, but then there are walls in this that, that are order, right? Order and discipline, right? And then the, the ceiling is 
fun and affirmation, right? Affirming, and, and the roof is prayer. All are necessary to hold up that structure. Right? The, the, the foundation is, is perhaps the most weighty. It requires the most material, needs to be structured correctly. Here Paul is saying that out of Christ, Christians have a particular duty. The church ought to be ordered this way. I'm not going to go back and, and go through all of those things. Um, I, I, there's, there's application to households as well, house, our households as well as our church household. What are the things that should be ordered? How, how, how disciplined ought we? How do we carry out this lifestyle of holiness? What does godliness look like in the church and in our homes? Well, it's here in the text. I, I'm not gonna go back over those things, but I wanna say if, if you want a diamond, you have to apply certain things. And I think sometimes in Christianity, um, we look at Jesus and we recite, we sing the songs that we've sung we're like, yes, that's great, but we lack the obedience that produces the order and discipline. Right? I, I think it's, it's because maybe we're lacking a fundamental affection for who Jesus is and what he's done. Right? When we don't have that order. Maybe when we think about a diamond, what does it take to produce a, a diamond? 25.2 million pounds per square inch. It's equal to 700 times the pressure exerted on the Earth's crust by Mount Everest. Plus heat. Right? So your faith has not been formed out of convenience. It hasn't been formed out of convenience. Jesus was the anti-consumer. He was the one consumed so that your faith would be formed. But here in this book, it says, it says Jesus said this, take my yoke upon you because it's light. What he's saying is I'm ask, what I'm asking you to do in comparison to what I've already done, you're just simply operating out of grace. But you have to apply effort to that grace. It's not 25.2 million tons per square inch or pounds per square inch. It's not that. Jesus has already done that. He's simply empowering you by his grace to produce the fruit from his efforts. But the reality is many of us, and I put myself in that category, are unwilling. Why? Because we have been so affected by consumerism. You see, consumerism is much more than an advertising strategy. We tend to think of it that way. It is a worldview that fundamentally alters the way that we approach our bodies, our relationships, our mental health, and our holiness, and our godliness. You know, there's no aspect about the American experience that has not been infiltrated by this kind of thinking. One pastor writes, he says, our lives have been consumed with the idea 
that's, that unless we somehow experience everything, travel everywhere, see everything, and are a part of a large number of people's experience, then our own lives are small and meaningless. This is a lie. But many of us believe that. You see, consumerism is more than ad- advertising. Consumerism is an economic system that thrives on people's lack of self-control, it preys on insecurities, and ultimately makes them vulnerable and weak. The consumer culture that we're a part of has commodified conversations about happiness, contentment, mindfulness, empowerment, into conversations about individualism and materialism under the banner of pursuing an authentic life. Listen to what one individual um, not a Christian. He's from the um, he's from the exercise um, looking good industry. This is what he says. And, and when I when I read this, I was like, "This is an alternate religion." Now we should take care of our bodies, and the Bible gives us good reasons for that. It gives us a worldview for that and a place for that. And it's not not that our that our bodies are bad; they're they're good. But listen to what he says. He says. We keep saying meaning-making is a growth industry. That's what, as a pastor, caught my attention. Here's someone that is essentially selling exercise, which I don't like to do, and he's saying this is meaning-making. How is that? Listen, he goes on. We keep saying meaning-making is a growth industry, especially as we see more automation, and robots, and AI, and VR, and all the stuff. Brands that can offer meaningful experiences of belonging and becoming are going to keep growing. How do I feel in a world of isolation? How do I feel truly connected to myself, to people around me? And how do I become the person that I feel called to be? Brands that help people do these things are going to see huge success. That might be through transformational experiences, that might be through reflection exercises, that might be through communities that offer support and commitment. It's not that religion is dying, it's just changing. Who are, who are going to be the providers of content and wisdom and community that's going to help people belong and become? Because that need is not going to change. Now, this is somebody who's just selling a membership at a gym. Now, there actually is a lot of truth behind what he's saying. But it's misdirected. It's misguided. He's making a promise that if you consume this brand, this brand is going to do it for you. All you got to do is reach up on the shelf and get this brand, and it's going to transform your life. And we've bought into that. And what we've bought into is that I don't really have to do very much. All I have to do is pick the right brand and consume the right thing. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says our hope is in Jesus. And then as we understand the gospel and it transforms our lives, then it calls us to grace-driven effort to do what? To proclaim the gospel, to give glory and honor and praise to the one who is ultimate and all and in all. We can get to an end of, of scripture like this and say, well, ah, what, does that, what does that have to do with me, that little poem about Jesus? I have other needs. Don't you know what my needs are? Eugene Peterson said this, if we are a nation of consumers, obviously the quickest and most effective way 
to get them into our congregations is to identify what they want and offer it to them. Satisfy their fantasies, promise them the moon, recast the gospel in consumer terms, entertainment, satisfaction, excitement, adventure, problem solving, whatever. But this is not the way, the way in which we become less and Jesus becomes more. This is not the way in which our sacrificed lives become available to others in justice and service. Forgive us. Forgive us, God. Right? All of us. For making church something that it is not. He's exactly right. If we stoop to the level of consumerism, we've taken, we've extracted the power of the gospel. out of who we are and what we do. It is not the way in which our sacrificed lives become available to others in justice and service. Consumer Christianity places our needs and our desires at the center of God's universe. You know, I'm not talking about the, just the easy, the punching bag of the prosperity gospel. It's far, consumerism is far more subtle than that. Some of, some of those things we can see, see very clearly. Here's what a pastor writes. He says this. So this is wrong, and he's selling this to you. He says this. Religion, and he's very popular, and has published a number of books, and he has a, a big platform. Religion is a means to an end. A more spiritual method of achieving our desires, whether they are the products of advertising or nobler sources. Those who relate to God as almighty provider hold a decidedly one-dimensional view of understanding him. God gives and we receive. That's his view. God is our vending machine in the sky. That's what he's good for. In other words, the value of God in our lives becomes predicated on how well he fulfills our needs. Better ma marriage, better relationships, emotional well-being, a meaningful life, an enthralling worship experience. One study referred to God as the combination of a divine butler and a cosmic therapist. And this is a Christian study. Oh, if I just, I would love to have a butler, a divine butler. Just go do this for me. Go bring this to me. Oh, I have angst in my soul. I have a divine therapist. That is such a low view of God. And we see here in the text all that Christ has done and who he is. And yet in the church and in our lives, we reduce him to nothing but a divine butler and therapist. Oh, that we might confess. That is sin. And we are to be made holy, to be separate for his glory, set apart for his purpose, that we might come together like this and through the week that we might be people who, of the ritual and rite of Jesus who have been conferred grace upon through the word of God. And we live lives of ongoing receiving and giving grace because of who God is and what he has done. Oh, that we would be holy and godly. 
In the end, what we see is that consumer Christianity becomes simply a self-serving religion where the weekly highlight is a short concert and an inspiring pep talk on Sunday morning. But let me tell you what it is. If that's all our Christianity is, it's a recipe for spiritual disillusionment. It's a formula for shallow faith. And it is a recipe that Satan wants you to believe because he wants to destroy you. It is not joy. Joy is cultivated because of what Jesus has done through grace-driven effort. You know, there's once was uh, an old church. And this church had a sign in the front of the building and said this, we preach Christ crucified. And that's what the people believed. And there was ivy growing up on that church building. And it obscured the last word, but nobody seemed to notice because it still said, it pre we preach Christ. But as the ivy grew more and more, the motto read, we preach. And finally, the ivy covered up and it just said we. And then the church died. Such is the fate of a church that fails to understand the duty of the gospel. And that duty begins with you and I. It begins where this book has pressed hard. It begins up out of the home and works into the household of faith. We preach Christ and him crucified. Oh, that we would press out this worldly idea of consumerism and we would look at Christ who did what? Gave his life for us. He was consumed. Oh, that we too might give our lives to each other in our homes, to each other in our household, and ultimately to the world. We've come to die in the same way that our Savior has come to die. And the Bible says that it was for joy that he looked at the cross. It is our joy and our joy filled when we give our lives And we give our lives so that others, so that their joy might be filled as well. Let's respond to the word of God this morning. You take a few moments, you can take out the church app or go to www.northbridge.me and respond. We'd love to pray for you and pray for the requests that you place there. But most importantly, right now is not what you put on that response card. We'd like, love for you to fill that out. Please fill that out during this time. But the most important conversation that you can have is between you and God right now. And perhaps you just need to pray this prayer and just say, Lord, search my heart. I, I don't wanna use you or use the gospel. I don't want to be a person simply of ritual. I wanna be godly in all things. 
I don't, I don't want to be a person that has certain practices that are just set aside for a purpose that doesn't fulfill the ultimate purpose of bringing you glory. You've made me holy, set apart only through the blood of Jesus Christ. So may we worship in that way and may we live in that way. And the only way that we will do that is if we're willing to go under the pressure of grace-driven effort. That's the only way that God will produce something in our lives. It's light compared to what Christ went under. Oh, that we would submit ourselves to the duty of the gospel. Lord, as we come before you and prepare our hearts to rejoice in the meal of communion, May we surrender and obey. We thank you uh, for examples that we can see even in our congregation of individuals that have, um, they have, they have made sacrifices. Uh, we thank you for men as elders um, who have foregone promotions and raises and other opportunities in order to shepherd your flock. Um, that is incredibly humbling. For servants within the church that have downsized and downshifted, um, that have set aside time, talent, and treasure so that you might be seen. But Lord, we know that we live in this unique time. It's difficult, it's dark, and this is the time in which the light shines the brightest. And so, Lord, may we depend upon you with all of our might, all of our strength, all of our heart, all of our soul, so that you might be made known. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.